Trust me, I'm like a smart person. The Labor Party can win as many votes in this house as they care to, Mr Speaker. But by the Australian people here tonight, they are failing the test of metal. They are failing child deaths. It led to the total destruction of our borders and it took the strength again of a coalition government, Mr Speaker. I believe that we can keep our borders secure, we can uphold national security, but still treat people humanely. We can have strong borders while still fulfilling our duty of care to the people in our care. And in the government. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to help us get a better handle on what's going on behind the news headlines. I'm Sananda Cray. Today, we're bringing you a special episode for anybody wondering what the hell just happened this week. The government of the day lost a vote on the floor of parliament. The bill at the centre of all this drama aims to allow medical transfers from Manus and Nauru for refugees and asylum seekers who are unwell. A day after the coalition lost the vote to a block of crossbenchers who had teamed up with the opposition, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was saying the government may reopen the Christmas Island Detention Centre and the coalition was accusing Labor of being weak on borders. So as we head into a federal election, you can strap yourselves in and get ready. There is going to be a very bitter campaign going back and forth on the topic of asylum seekers and borders in the coming months. We published an explainer on how that Medivac bill will actually affect unwell asylum seekers on the conversation earlier this week. Just search for Medivac and Mary Ann Kenny and Nicholas Proctor. They're the experts who wrote it. But to help us better understand the broader context, we're hearing today from a refugee law and policy expert from Macquarie University. My name is Daniel Gezelbash, and I'm a refugee law expert at Macquarie Law School. I'm a senior lecturer there and a special counsel for the National Justice Project. I spoke to him at his home in Sydney this week. So, Daniel, the coalition is saying outright that the refugee medivac bill will represent a green light to people smugglers. When you hear politicians saying that, what's your response? Look, that's completely false. There's absolutely nothing in the bill that's going to change the circumstances for new arrivals in Australia. It only applies to people that are already on Manus Island or Nauru and are in need of urgent medical attention. I mean, the Prime Minister and others have said that that nuance is not going to get through to these people smugglers. So what do you think? I've really been struck by the really high level of hypocrisy with those comments around nuance. And if the government's really concerned about the nuance not getting through, and if they really think that it's the broader messaging that's what is going to get through to the asylum seekers and people smugglers, then they should be more careful about the misinformation um, and the signaling they're sending out themselves. So all this harking on about the loss of control over our borders, that's what the people smugglers are going to be hearing. And so, uh, you know, it's beyond reckless, really. And if there's any pull factors at play with this bill, it's the government's rhetoric. What rhetoric are you talking about there when you say that that rhetoric is going to act as a, a pull factor? Yeah, so look, you've had the government blanketing the airwaves, hammering this idea home that somehow the changes represent a weakening of our border control policies, that they give a green light for the people smugglers to ply their trade again. What's actually happened here is that Labor wants to escape the fact that they have weakened our border protection regime, but by trying to create these these uh, red herrings that make people focus on something other than the central fact, which is that Labor's changed our border protection laws to weaken them. And that was uh, Back in 2010, I wrote an article with Professor Mary Crock called Loose Lips Bring Ships. And there we argued that the rhetoric at the time, the coalition was in opposition at the time, but their rhetoric about 
this loss of control over borders and dysfunction with border security was one of the pull factors leading to the surge in arrivals at that time. Uh, the situation now is far more concerning because now we have a sitting government saying that these changes mean that we're losing control of our borders. So if any signal is going to get through to potential people smugglers, it's going to be the government saying uh, that these give the people smugglers the green light. So the government should be more careful and considered uh, in the signaling they send. And you know, the Prime Minister had repeated opportunities to set the record straight on this point. And he was pressed in his news conference, in his press conference yesterday, uh, and he refused to do so. He kept hammering home this idea. And I mean, this is really, really reckless behaviour. Do these people smugglers keep an eye on the Australian news? You know, are they watching what happens in our parliament and thinking about that and factoring into their decision making? Yeah, look, I mean, we live in a, a super interconnected world these days. Um, news travels fast and both the people smugglers and asylum seekers are fairly well informed um, about policy changes. Uh, usually the information is coming from, particularly for the asylum seekers, our, our research shows uh, that they're generally in regular contact with relatives in Australia, uh, or relatives or friends. And so the signalling, and I, I hope some of the, most of the nuance manages to get through. Labor is at pains to point out that the Medivac bill is, is ring-fencing this um, provision, allowing the medical transfer of refugees and asylum seekers from Manus and Nauru that it's ring-fenced to the current cohort and it won't affect anybody who subsequently comes by boat. I mean, do you think that message is coming through to the Australian public? Yeah, look, the Labor, the crossbench, refugee advocates, they've all been trying to hammer this, this point home. Uh, but uh, I fear it's been drowned out a bit by the, the coalition rhetoric and um, there seems to be you know, a deliberate attempt to wedge Labor on this and you know, some of the claims being made in this regard, either misrepresentations or you know, close to outright lies. What other important things do you think people need to know about this Medivac bill and how it'll work? The first thing is to point out uh, why we needed the bill in the first place. So the government has fought to prevent people in urgent need of medical attention on the room and it's being transferred to Australia. We've had more than 336 people have to go to court to secure medical transfers here, and the government fought and spent you know, spent in total hundreds of thousands of dollars to stop that happening. In terms of the content, uh, and again, I, I think it's just important to highlight and respond to some of the misrepresentations that have been made, both by politicians and commentators in the media. Uh, the first is this idea that you know any two doctors uh, can make a recommendation, and a person ends up in Australia. That's simply not true. So there's there's checks and balances in place. So initially, two doctors make the recommendation that a person can't access the medical assessment or treatment that they need on Nauru or Manus. The minister has powers to refuse this on a number of grounds. One is if they don't agree with assessment, uh, but then there's also national security grounds and grounds of criminality. So where a person has a substantial criminal record and where they pose a threat to the Australian community. In the instance that they don't agree with the assessment, then it goes to an independent panel of doc doctors who can make final determination. But if there's issues of national security or uh, serious criminality, the buck stops with the minister. So there are you know, checks and balances in place. And that leads on to my second point. So all this fear-mongering around the fact that somehow this bill is going to let in murderers, rapists and pedophiles into Australia. So there's a clear, clear exclusion for 
people who have serious criminal records, even if people don't meet that threshold. I think the example that's been given by the Attorney General is someone that is accused of these crimes but hasn't been convicted. So first, there should be a presumption of innocence in those cases. But having said that, if we bring them to Australia, if there's absolutely any concerns about whether they pose a threat to the Australian community, it's important to note that people will be held in immigration detention when they arrive. The only way they can be released from immigration detention is if the minister exercises their discretion to do so. And yesterday we heard the Prime Minister talking about the reopening of Christmas Island, uh, the Christmas Island Detention Centre. What were your thoughts when you heard that news breaking? Look, again, I think it's more about politics than an actual policy need. Uh, We've transferred more than 800 people from Nauru Manus Island over the last few years for medical treatment in Australia. They've been easily absorbed by the existing detention capacity that we have here. But reopening Christmas Island sends a really strong signal to the Australian public that uh, plays with this narrative that that this legislation somehow has undermined border security and has given the green light for people smugglers and we're going to see more people arriving. Prime Minister was very clear in explicitly setting that out in his comments. You know, he said this is to deal with the people that are going to be transferred here and also to prepare for future possible arrivals. But as I said, there's, I don't think there's any immediate policy need for doing that, um, particularly the existing cohort. I mean, there's only a total of a thousand people left on the Manus, And I think it is, there's been f- some false claims that they're all going to end up here. That's simply not the case given the safeguards that are in place. And I think we could easily absorb them in the the existing detention capacity. Okay, so after the week we've had, what do you think this tells us about the election campaign to come? Yeah, look, I think we've got some very clear signals uh, from both parties about how they're going to run the campaign. The coalition is going to hammer this home. I think it's one of the central pillars of their their campaign. Uh, They're going to go all out. On, on, the, on the border control issue and the fact that the Labor government can't be trusted to control our borders. Uh, Labor, on the other, other hand, has, I guess, what is a more nuanced position, uh, which is that we can have strong borders and compassion for asylum seekers. Uh, but given that nuance, I think it's going to be, they're going to have to work much harder to sell it. I think the um, loss of control over, borders, na- over the borders narrative is one that's easy to get cut through. So do you think the coalition is onto a potentially winning strategy here? Look, it's certainly worked very well for them in the past. And you know, both the 2001 and 2013 elections, uh, you know, the border control narrative really worked for them well there. But I think there's a number of differences to you know, the current climate and what was going on then. Uh, the most important one being that there are no actual boats arriving on Australia's shores right now. You know, there's, there's still this slow trickle of attempts, but we're pushing them back at sea. And I just don't think the spectre of hypothetical future arrivals cuts through as well with this fear-mongering um, scare tactics as actual boat arrivals do. The, the second point is that I think there's really been a change of public sentiment on this area, and that could be related to my first point about the number of boats decreasing that are arriving on our shores. And I think there really is a desire in the public for a, a more compassionate approach. We saw it play out in the Wentworth by-election, but the question is, uh, will it hold up against you know, the fear campaign between now and the election? When you look at all these things that have happened this week in Asylum Seeker News, Hakeem Al-Arabi, this Medivac bill and uh, other issues floating around, what do you think that says about our relationship with asylum seeker policy? I think that when, as in the case of Hakim Al-Arabi, when people can put a face and a name and a story to a particular refugee, uh, then there's a great deal of compassion and goodwill. 
I think that compassion can wane a bit when we're dealing with faceless individuals. So be that you know, people returning back at airports, people returning back at sea, or hypothetical future arrivals. The, and the other common thread that runs, seems to run through you know, public opinion on this issue is this fixation with control. And you know, it stems from the fact that we're an island nation and that we have the hypothetical possibility of exerting complete control in a way that you know, other states with porous land borders you know, can't even dream of. But I guess this, over, over the years, this possibility has kind of transformed into this obsession. And so I don't think the Australian public fears refugees, the, but the public fears uh, loss of control over borders. And that's why uh, John Howard's infamous remarks, you know, we will control who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they arrive, you know, cut through so well with electorate. And just fleshing out the issues around airport arrivals that you wrote about in the conversation this week, what do you think people need to know about that issue? I think uh, your your listeners will probably be surprised to know that we've actually had record numbers of asylum seeker claims um, in in last year for people arriving by plane. So we had 27,000, it's an unprecedented number of people who arrived by plane and applied for protection. But, you know, it completely flies under the radar. We don't hear much about it in the media at all. And look, there are some you know, serious concerns, legal concerns, about the way we treat those people as well, particularly those uh, who apply for asylum at our airports. And uh, you know, we had the very concerning reports in Four Corners last week about two Saudi women who were turned back at Australian airports uh, after making it clear that they intended to apply for asylum. And you know, that's a clear breach of domestic Australian law as well as international law. But it's an issue that you know, hasn't been getting a big run in the media. So you're a migration lawyer. What do you think we should do? How might our laws and our asylum seeker policies look if we handled this differently and remove the politics from the debate? I think it's really difficult or maybe impossible to remove the politics from the debate. At the end of the day, we live in, in a democracy, and in a de- democracy, I think the laws of the country should reflect the will of the people. And in that regard, I think the you know, Australians have made it very clear that they're not comfortable with boat arrivals, or asylum seekers arriving by boat, and look, there's some, some good reasons for that. At the same time, I think they've made it clear that they want a little bit more compassion in this area. Uh, but we also have to be cognizant of the fact that we have international you know, obligations under international law that uh, require us uh, to afford certain protections to asylum seekers. Yeah, I think there's better ways we can balance these considerations. Uh, so firstly, I think you know, offshore detention and offshore processing you know, has really passed its use-by date. And you know, in a way, you know, it makes this discussion about the medical evacuation bill somewhat irrelevant. Uh, I think that we could transfer all the remaining people on Nauru and Manus Island uh, to Australia and it wouldn't result in the resumption of boats. Now, these people have been suffering on, you know, for more than six years and their suffering does absolutely nothing in terms of deterring boat arrivals. Uh, we still have boat pushbacks at play and you know, we can keep the Nauru centre open for possible future arrivals, but you know, the people that have been languishing there for so long should be removed immediately, either, either brought to Australia or uh, the government should take up New Zealand's long-standing offer to resettle refugees, which you know, we've inexplicably uh, refused up until now. Uh, second, we really need to reconsider the way we treat asylum seekers that are already in the Australian community. Uh, particularly those that arrived by boat in in recent years. So there's a a huge cohort of tens tens of thousands of people that that came after 2014, um, and they've been held in limbo ever since. Some are still waiting for their asylum claims to be processed, 
the lucky ones have only been afforded temporary protection visas and there's been a concerted push by the government to, to try and strip them of welfare payments, entitlements, support. And again, you know, the, the suffering of these people has absolutely nothing to do with securing our borders. The most important point is Australia more constructively engaging with countries in our region on this issue. We've been acting unilaterally for too long and we need more constructive cooperation. And by cooperation, I don't mean shifting the burden to the poorest countries in our region, which is what regional cooperation has meant uh, up until now. Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, they've all signaled they're interested in strengthening the legal protections they have for refugees. Uh, the problem is that the Australian government has lost the moral high ground of legitimacy to really uh, engage constructively on these issues. But no, we can change that. And we should be throwing our support behind those efforts to improve conditions in our region. Uh, we should be providing aid, the technical support. Uh, and in, most importantly, we should be incentivizing those moves uh, by allocating targeted resettlement quotas uh, for countries who do agree to take on a bigger role in, in affording protection. Uh, so, I mean, that's a win-win for asylum seekers. It means more people in these countries get access to basic protection. So right now, uh, you know, the people don't have legal status, they can't work. Uh, if we can work to change that in those countries uh, and in return resettle more people from those countries, people end up, more people end up getting refuge in Australia and you know, the sizable refugee communities in, in those countries get a much better deal as well. All right, so that's sort of the, the short-term strategy. Uh, in, in the longer term, we should be moving towards a more formal system of regional processing. And I set out a detailed sketch of what that would look like in practice in an op-ed piece with Professor James Hathaway last year in The Guardian. But very, very quickly, a, a system like that would necessitate substantial buy-in from countries in our region. So states would have to agree to both provide resettlement places for refugees, but also afford protection to people while they're going through the settlement determination procedures. There'd be one centralized body um, that carries out asylum determinations and people would be subject to the same procedures no matter which of the participating countries they were in. So people in Australia would have the same procedures as you know, someone in Thailand or Indonesia. If found to be a refugee, they would go into a centralized pool to be resettled amongst all the countries that are participating. So what the system does is breaks the nexus between arriving at a particular location and permanent settlement at a particular location. So, so someone in Australia would have the same chance of being permanently settled in Australia as a refugee that applies in Indonesia or Thailand. So the idea is that you know, it takes away the incentive for people to cross borders and for people to risk their lives and make the journey by sea. And I mean, the benefit there again is that by significantly increasing protection capacity in our region, uh, you know, we can help many, many, many more people uh, access protection than Australia would be able to do so unilaterally. Dr. Daniel Gazelbash, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. It comes out every month, but we might experiment with getting some more episodes out more regularly. So stay tuned. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. You can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com. My name is Sananda Cray, and I'll chat to you soon.